The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. But today we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42. So I'm just going to jump right into it because I know last time I took quite a bit of time. Uh, So we're just going to jump right into it. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You know, when I was in high school, I played basketball, and there were times we had to run a mile at practice and doing all these suicides, you know, touching the line and doing another one, coming back. And if our coach wasn't pleased with our performance, we had to do more laps, sometimes run an extra mile. And, you know, going the second mile is really uncomfortable. It's not easy. And that's what Jesus really is instructing us to do in these verses. We live in a country where we're concerned about our rights, right? We have, over the years, developed so many different movements. You know, the civil rights, the women's rights, children's rights, workers' rights, prisoners' rights, animals' rights, and so on. And I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying there's so many rights. But the principles given here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount kind of go against the grain Because we have to surrender our rights to be in compliance with what the Lord is instructing us to do here. And this section on the Sermon on the Mount has to do more with the proper response when one is personally wronged. Whenever we like to admit it, most of us have at some point desired to get even with somebody else, right? When somebody done us wrong, we're going to get even. There's something within that human nature that says, I'll return to favor. And I'll tell you, it'd be a lot easier to be a Christian if it wasn't for people, right? If I could just follow God and not have to deal with folks, I'd be a great Christian. But how is a Christian who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit supposed to react to personal offenses? And Jesus, as we'll study, gives some radical answers. You know, they're a lot different than our society and what we think. They're 180 degrees different. The world says, fight back, get revenge. But not only they go against the flesh, but when you act that way, you're going to be ridiculed by the world. They're going to see you as weak and so forth. And our society has made us consumed with our rights and really to be unconcerned for the well-being of others. You know, since it's not possible for everyone to get what they want, we all insist on our own way. And when our selfishness, when self is in the foreground, everything else becomes in the background. You know, selfish interest dominates, justice is replaced by what? Vengeance. We want vengeance. Impartial concern for justice because partial concern, we want personal vengeance. And concern for protecting society becomes concern for 
protecting self-interests. And James also points this out in James 4 and verses, first two verses says, where do wars and fights come among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that were in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You see, when rights are first, righteousness suffers. And few people had their legitimate rights trampled on more than Paul. Paul wrote to the indulgent Corinthians, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, first verse says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He's addressing that church. You're my work. And then in verses 4 through 6 says, Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And then in verse 12, he says, if others are partakers of this right, are we and not even more? And then he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, let we hinder the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul said, I have the right to all these things. I have a right to have family, kids. I have the right to get paid from, from you guys. You're my work in the Lord. But he said, we did not use this right. Paul made fishing nets by night. He didn't get paid. But sometimes Paul did not always win or prevail. If you look at Acts 23 and first five verses, uh, this is where Paul was brought before his last trial in Jewish Senderhin, the, the trial. And he began his testimony by saying this in first verse. He says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said this, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So he starts his testimony, and right away in verse 2, And the high priest Nias commanded those who stood, stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Before he even started speech, Nias says, Strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do not command me to be struck contrary to the law. So he talks back. He's retaliating. And those who stood by him said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that this was the high priest, for it's written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You see, when Paul was informed that this was the high priest, he apologized. He said, I did not know. You shall not speak evil of a ruler over your people. But Paul's anger momentarily got the best of him, and he retaliated with harsh words. Maybe he wasn't dressed, Ananias, in proper gear of a high priest, but he had known he was speaking to Ananias, and Ananias was not a really good priest. He was an unusually arrogant, immoral man. But Paul, even though in the human side, reminded him that in order for a prisoner to be struck before he was convicted was against the Jewish law. And that very law, Ananias was sworn to carry out. But Paul says, I was still wrong because in God's eyes, 
I had no right to speak. Regardless if he's evil or not, he's the high priest. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount maybe is the most misinterpreted, misapplied, these verses 38 through 42, because sometimes it's interpreted that Christians are to be some sanctified doormats. It does not mean that we just roll over for everything, no. Uh, it doesn't promote pacifism. Some, some use these to objection to serve in the military. You know, it says don't resist evil and so forth. It does not promote those things. Because Jesus already, as we studied previously, made it plain he didn't come to eliminate even the smallest part of the law, and which includes respects of obedience to human and human law and authorities as well. But among the many unrighteous things that the religion of scribes and Pharisees, there was this insistence on personal rights and vengeance. And Jesus comes to this illustration. This is his fifth, fifth illustration. And he's contrasting their righteousness, not the true law, but their righteousness against how they twisted God's word from the Old Testament. So what does the Old Testament teach us? Again, we're going to look at the Old Testament, what the principle of that is, what the scribes taught, and what Jesus is saying. So three points. In Matthew 5, 38, he begins by saying, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this quotation is directly from the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24, it says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24, 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is he caused the disfigurement of a man, so shall be done to him. And Deuteronomy 19.21 also says, Your eye shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Simply, what this means is, it required a punishment exactly to match the crime. That's what it's teaching. And first, basically it had two, two basic meanings. First, it has to match the crime. It had, and the second one is to cut further crime because if you're going to take somebody's eye, you know what happens. Your eye is going to be taken. So in Deuteronomy 19.20, it says, And those who remain shall fear, hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not get, um, again commit such evil among you. So it sets an example. And the, another thing it was doing is to prevent excessive punishment. You know, if somebody took your eye, you can't take both of their eyes. You can't take their you know, a tooth or a leg or something like that. You know, it prevented angry personal vengeance and retaliation. If you look at Genesis 4, in verses 23 and 24, it says, Then Lamech said to his wives, Adonzilla, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed the man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And then in verse 24, it says, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. See, so punishment was to match the crime, but not exceed harm done to someone by the offense. And folks, and the most important things I want you to understand about this is in all those three instances where I read to you in the Old Testament, where it prescribes eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, the principle has to do with civil justice system. Because Exodus uh, verse, uh, chapters 21, 23 deal entirely of Israel's civil law. 
Leviticus 24, and so does Deuteronomy 19. Now, punishment sometimes was carried out by the victim, but the trial and the sentencing were always the responsibility of duly appointed judges. So that's important for us to understand that it has to be through the judicial system that they had at the time. So if you look at Exodus 21, 22, it says, if men fight and hurt a woman with child that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay all as the judges determine. In Deuteronomy 19, in verses 18 to 20, and the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if witness is a false witness who he has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. So you see, so even if you falsely accuse somebody and you want something done to them, and they find out you're falsely accusing them, whatever you want it done to them is going to be done to you. So it's preventing that kind of crime. So the law of eye and eye is just the law because it has to match the punishment to the offense. And really, it was a merciful law because it limited also the propensity of this evil heart that we have to seek retribution beyond the offense, right? And it's a beneficial law because it protected society from doing wrong. In our selfish overreaction, natural response of our sinful human nature, we're tempted to get more than even. And we say, we're getting even, but we're getting more than even. We're like Lamech, right? You hit me, I'm going to hit you ten times harder. Yeah? We want a pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. And this is the reason God restricts vengeance to himself. In Hebrews 10.30, we read, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God's command for the individual always has been what for our enemies? If you look at Proverbs 25, 21, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And we'll go over this more next week, but look at Matthew 5, 44. It says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Same message in Romans 12, 20 says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire for his head. And we as individuals have no right to say, as Proverbs 24, 29 puts it, do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. You see, at no instance, this is what we need to understand. Yes, there was a law tooth for tooth. But in no instance did the Old Testament allow an individual take the law into his own hands and apply it personally. And what's the teaching describes? They did exactly that. That's what they've done. Each man was permitted to become his own judge, jury, and executioner. That's what was happening. So they turned this law into an individual license of civil, you know, we can just pervert it to personal vengeance. For personal vengeance. Instead of proper acknowledging the law, 
eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as limit, they conveniently used it as a mandate for vengeance. And God has gave restrictions on civil courts. So uh, all their self-righteousness, you know, you have to invent the system that you can keep. That's what they were doing. So what Jesus is doing, again, he's just putting it back up where it belongs. God brought it down so low. So <laughs> in verse 39, he begins to tell them, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to other him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. First, I want to clear something up in verse 39. If you look at verse 39, the first part where it says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus here is not teaching that we have no stand to be taken against evil, that it should be simply allowed to take its course. It does not mean we're encouraging evil or neglecting. We're supposed to oppose wickedness. Jesus' apostles continually opposed evil with every means and resource. And remember Jesus, when they profaned God's temple, what did he do? He just said, oh, just let them continue doing it. No, he made some whips, some cords, and he let them have it. Look in John 2, verse 15. When he had made a whip cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Is that not resisting? That is resisting. We are to resist the devil. If, if you look at James 4, 7, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in Peter continues in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, says, Resist him, the devil, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're supposed to resist the devil, withstand, and everything evil that he stands for. And Paul writes to 1 Thessalonians 5.22, says, Abstain from every form of evil. So there's proper resisting of evil, and there has to be also resisting of evil in the churches. Remember the story of Peter, how he was being a hypocrite? He was eating with Jews and Gentiles, and then, you know, siding with the Judaizers. If you look at Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Now Peter had come to Antioch, and I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, and he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were, were of the circumcision. So he's being a hypocrite here. And 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, But those who are outside, God judges. He tells us, put away from yourselves an evil person. So if we're putting away an evil person, we're not resisting him. And then we'll also have church discipline, right? When there's evil or a person is not, uh, has sin in their lives, we're supposed to take steps, which is outlined in Matthew 18 in verses uh, 15 through 17. So if you take a brother, you go talk to him privately. If he doesn't listen, you take, take another member and so forth. And if he doesn't listen, you tell it to the church. And if he still doesn't respond, he's like a tax collector or Gentile. Look at that. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him 
his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, take another one or two more. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. So there must be cleansiness in the church. And he wrote to Timothy that these kind of people sometimes don't repent. He tells them in 520, he says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So that the principle of non-resistance here also does not apply to, need you understand, government authorities. Because in Romans 13.4, it says, for, the God, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath upon him who practices evil. And Peter also echoes the same kind of teaching. It says in 1 Peter 2, 13, 14, it says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whenever the king is supreme, or the governors to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. You see, for the sake of God's righteousness, as wake, you know, as well as the righteousness and human justice, believers are obligated to obey the laws. Now, if they go against the teachings of the scriptures, you're not. But uphold the law and teach others to uphold the law. You know, sometimes we see a crime happening. We don't report it. Somebody's getting beaten up. We just don't want to get involved. Or we cover up a crime of a loved one. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. If we do that, it's just an act of wickedness because it undermines the civil justice and also undermines the divine justice. So until this time, all this evil really has to be, all it can be is restrained by the laws. We have laws. And you know, in the Old Testament, is never, told you this before, at odds with the New Testament, the law of grace, justice, and mercy. So the Old Testament teaches nothing of a righteous and just God apart from merciful and loving God, and the New Testament teaches nothing for of a merciful and loving God apart from the righteous and just God, holy God. God is unchanging. And you know what happened? You know what's happening? You know, sometimes I would, you've heard me say this before, all these crimes and everything's happening. <clears throat> Schools teaching wicked things, so we blame the government, the White House, the state house. We need to blame the church house. We do. Because the church has stopped preaching God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, internal punishment for the lost. We become just like the world. And we, by doing that, stopped preaching the fullness of the gospel. And to lower God's standards of justice is to lower God's standards of righteousness. So this resist that he's talking about is not regarding those kind of things. He says resist an evil person. Don't resist an evil person. Don't oppose when harm done to us personally. Personally by someone who's evil. So Jesus is speaking of personal resentment, spite, and vengeance. Paul wrote this to Romans, says, repay no one evil for evil, right? That's what that 
don't resist an evil person is. Because this van, van, when we have vengeance, we're violating God's law. In Romans 12, 21, he also tells them, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. So it's the same thing as pray for your enemies, give them food and drink, and so on. So after we establish this principle, the first half, he talks about, he picks out some things in my mind what will have to do with dignity, security, liberty, and our property. He says, hey, when somebody steps on your toes regarding these things, you personally do not resist an evil person. So in verse 39, if you go back to it, he says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know, as human beings, regardless of who you are, political system, whatever, just a human being, we all have the right to be treated with dignity and respect because we're all created in the image of God. Simple reason. I think I remember I told you a short, short shared story with you. I used to pick up when I lived in California this old lady to go to church with us, and this guy ran a stop sign, and I called him an idiot, and she's, I had a low rider. I don't know how she did it. She took the person, just slapped me upside the head, and she said, how dare you call a creature of God an idiot? We all have, want to be treated with dignity and respect because we're created in his image. We belong to him. But sometimes we're going to be persecuted and even mistreated just for being a Christian, right? We're not to retaliate. And Paul writes to Timothy and says this, yes, who all those who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. But you're not to retaliate. It is the way we react to this mistreatment or insult that we're talking about here. Now, a slap or striking somebody in the face in those times was an act of you're attacking somebody's honor. So they'd rather have you hit you in the body than in the face or slap you because now you're offending their honor. It's something being less than human. Even slaves at the time would rather take whips on the back than be slapped in the face by their master. So when we're insulted literally or figuratively, struck on the cheek, we are to turn him the other one. And turning the under cheek, folks, it's not necessarily physically turning it, right? We, were, we read if your eye is causing you to lust or so forth, pluck it out. We mean literally, so he doesn't mean literally here. It means a non-retaliating, humble, gentle spirit that we talked about in the Beatitudes and verses 3 and 5 particularly. So Jesus strongly resisted that was directed something, some insults or, you know, God's temple was profane. He resisted. But notice when he was personally attacked or harm was coming to him, he never retaliated. Did you know that? He didn't make up some whips and start beating people when somebody said something about him. Look at Matthew 26, verses 67, 68. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with palms of their hands. See, they're slapping him in his face, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one that struck you? 
And Isaiah predicted this in Isaiah 56. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out my beard and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And when Jesus hung on the cross for these people, look at Luke 23, 24. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And Peter sums up the Lord's example in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, says, For what credit is it when you're beaten for your own faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer and take it patiently, this is commandable before God. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He who committed no sin nor deceit found in him in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So we are to defend God's honor. He's our king. But when you're personally attacked, turn the other cheek. We can't retaliate. So turning the other cheek, we need to understand, is more of a illustration of a principle. It's a attitude of the heart more than the physical posture, right? So turn the cheek means don't fight back when you're attacked. Don't retaliate. Leave the execution to the judge, our Lord. And sometimes we think we're turning the other cheek, right? Uh, sometimes we, I think, as there's an old Scottish preacher, and he said, you know, uh, when somebody strikes your cheek, give them the other one, but the third lick belongs to you. You only got two cheeks. And I'm also reminded of a story. A truck driver stopped by a, a diner all-night restaurant, and the waitress served him some food, gave him a burger, fries, and a drink, and all of a sudden these bikers came in, you know, the Hell's Angel type. One took his burger, took a bite. The other one took his fries, and the other one started drinking his food. And they said, what are you going to do about it? in the register leaves. You know, the waitress sees this, she goes to the register, puts the money in the register, and she's looking at the door, and the big old truck is leaving the parking lot. So she goes over to those three bikers, and they say, he wasn't much of a man, was he? Says, I don't know about that, but he wasn't much of a truck driver because he just drove over three motorcycles out in the parking lot. <laughs> That's not an example of being, we must first forgo our right to strike him back. You know, sometimes we do have, if you will, this power to strike by, back, right? We have the authority and put somebody down. Haul your horses back in. Don't let that, even if you have more authority and position at work or whatever, and you have to do something, you can strike back because somebody offended you. Pull your horses. And then reject the urge to repay also with gossip, right? Gossip with gossip. Second, replace those feelings of resentment with anger and says what? Do good. Do good. And then when you forgive you take concrete steps to re restore the good relationship. So that's going the second mile, isn't it? Going above and beyond. 
And then he says in verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So the Lord is not saying you're not supposed to protect your property and things like that if somebody's trying to steal it. That's not what he's saying. But he gives us an example, not when we are wrong, but when you wrong somebody. So if somebody's taking you to court for something that you didn't do, and those times do come, do they, when we offend somebody? And the illustration here, again, going the second mile, is give up your cloak too. So what's this coat, cloak, tunic business? So the shirt here mentioned is the tunic is the undershirt. And the coat is what they wear on the outside. So tunic, everybody would have one or two. And typically the coat, they only would have one. And that coat, that garment, also served as a blanket at night. And again, if you were poor and you had nothing to give, when you went to court, you're guilty of something, they took, you paid the debt with clothing. However, no one could take your coat. They could take your tunic, but they couldn't take your coat because that's what the Mosaic law required. If you look at Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27, it says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun down. For it is the only covering, it is his garment for the skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So, when a person had no money or other possessions, and they did something and went to court, the court ordered them, take off the shirt off your back. But even they couldn't demand the coat, but even if they did, it would be really an inconvenience because... Each day, you would have to go and return it to that person at sundown and pick it up in the morning. But you can give it up voluntarily to meet the required debt. So if we're in the wrong, if we hurt someone or something, we must go above and beyond and repay it. So if we broke a $20 item, give them $50. Not say it's only twenty dollars. That's the that's the gist of it here. And we shouldn't really go and sue each other. Paul talks about that in First Corinthians in chapter six. That's why it means we should handle it outside the courts. So that's the attitude we should have. Remember the tax collector Zacchaeus that climbed the tree, and Jesus came to his house. What did he say? Everybody I offended, I'm going to what? He even went above and beyond. He said, I'm going to restore fourfold, right? He's going to give them back four times than he initially took. And then it talks about liberty in verse 41. Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. God's original intention, folks, is for everyone to live in freedom. But unfortunately, human bondage and slavery... They're all consequences of sin, the fallen human nature. And it was not part of the original God's design and plan. And again, there's best of human governments always try to protect your freedoms and sometimes the freedoms of other countries. So men have the right to certain freedoms, 
but not all freedoms are to be cherished and protected at the expense of righteousness or even faithful witness. So the reason he's using this example, because the Roman law gave a soldier to write to force a civilian to carry his pack or his weapons for a million. Basically, it's a Roman mile. A Roman mile was about a thousand steps. So a law designed that was really relieving the soldier of the burden of carrying things if he was going somewhere. And he could force anybody, regardless if you're working or in the field or doing anything, he's just going to say, hey, you got to carry my pack. Go carry it. And this was so, so demeaning to the Jews because not only are they were oppressed by them, but now he's got to carry his bags too. And oftentimes when they did took this trip, you know, the Roman soldiers would make fun of them, ridicule them, and they're walking down the street and everybody's looking at him. So he's saying when you're forced to go that one mile, you should be willing to go too. See, what they were doing is 1,000, dropping it, I'm done. You can't force me no more because that's the law. They're doing the bare minimum of the law. But he's saying you need to go above that and walk too. And you must be doing it willingly too. You know, sometimes when we do something, you want me to go extra mile? I'll tell you where to go, right? Not walking two miles. But in doing so, we are obedient to the Lord, testify to his righteousness, and we represent his kingdom. So going above and beyond and literally going the extra mile here. And then he says in verse 42, give to him who asks and you from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. That is surrendering some of our property, right? Or giving something. We just like giving things up, especially the things we possess, something belongs to us. But as Christians, we really forget that everything we have is truly God's and we're just stewards of it. Isn't that how the scripture teaches it? But we have the right to use the things that God gave us the way we want to use them. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, you have to put that also on the altar when Christ requires it. So if somebody comes to you and don't know and they're saying, can I borrow some brown sugar? You got some brown sugar in your closet? Give us some brown sugar. However, we're not, does not mean that we're respond in every foolish way. Sometimes people go to the other extent, like, oh, they want this. No, if you know somebody's a drug addict asking for money, I wouldn't give it to them. We had an instance here that somebody came, and they said they were hungry. It looked suspicious. So Brother Mike had went and said, hey, we're not going to give him money, but we're going to go and get him some food. So you have to use discernment and wisdom, and God will bless. So it doesn't mean that you just Somebody says something, you're a Christian, you have to give it to me. That's not what it means. God gave it to you, so be wise and use discernment. But the principle he's talking about that, when we see a need or we know of a need, and that person didn't even ask, and you know you can help them, you should be willing and be generous and have a loving desire to help others. So folks, here are the examples that we really looked at. I call this section the second mile ministry because 
in all those things, he's requiring us to go above and beyond what's needed, right? And not just in the world, in church. Sometimes we feel like if I do X, Y, Z, I'm good. We do the minimum. Well, maybe in the world, you, you have a, anybody have one of those employees that do the bare minimum? And then you do their review and you gave them a self-evaluation. They turn it back and they say, I exceeded all these things. I exceeded this. I exceeded this. And then you have to pull them in and talk to them like, hey, you gave yourself an exceeding X, Y, Z. Yeah. Can you tell me why you think you did that? And he describes it. And I said, well, what's the minimum? It's the same descriptions that they just described. So I said, well, if that's the minimum, how are you exceeding? Right? And if you're not exceeding or beyond, are you going to move anywhere further in your career? I don't think so. So things, things applies to church. Sometimes we think we should just do the minimum, get a check mark. But to Corinthians, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That abounding means going above and beyond, right? So that's why sometimes my sermons are fairly long, because I want to go above and beyond of the requirement. And folks, I want to tell you, the only person who's non-divisive, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, is a person who died to self. That's what it teaches. You have to die to self. And the key to living a Christ-centered life, or this kingdom life that we've been talking about, is emptying yourself out of yourself. Because I often say, God can't fill which has already been full, right? So we have to empty ourselves out. And a believer who is faithful to Christ lives for him, and if necessary, dies for him. In Romans 14, 8, Paul says, if we were live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whatever we live or die, what? We are the Lord's. It is impossible, folks, to live for self and Christ at the same time. It's impossible. I was reading George Mueller, and he wrote this. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, to its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or the blame or even my brother and friends. And since I have died, studied only to show myself approved unto God. That's the spirit Jesus teaches his here in this passage. The spirit of going above and beyond, going a second mile. Folks, let me give you some examples and you tell me. This spirit of going the second mile. Remember Abraham? He was God's chosen person, right? But when him and Lot had a disagreement, his herdsmen, what do you say? Lot, you choose where you want to go and I'll go the other way. Did he not have the right, like, hey, look, man, I'm in charge here. You go over there, your herdsman, you can't be thankful that I even allowed you here. But that spirit of second mile, hey, you choose. He had the power, but he said, look, you choose. You go that way, I'll go this way. You go this way, I'll go that way. 
Think about the spirit of Joseph. Embraced and kissed his brothers who sold them into slavery. Didn't he have the right, human right, not vengeance, but human right to throw them in jail? Right? Or even take it further because he had all the power. He could take some vengeance out. But he didn't do it. He went above and beyond. Think about David when he was in a cave and Saul came in there. He could have killed him. This man's after me. He's going to kill me. I had an opportunity to kill him. That I will not raise my hand on the God's anointed. Kind of like Paul when he found out that Ananias was a high priest. Whoa. Because that's what the Scripture teaches. So he's going not by the human standard. He's going by the Scripture standard. Elijah, he fed the enemy, Assyrian army. Think about Stephen as he was praying for those that were stoning him. So, folks, it's the spirit of every believer by the Holy Spirit's power. What's the, what's the requirement? In verse 48, in chapter 5 says, Be perfect as my Father's perfect. That's the standard. So, going the second mile is what... Jesus is asking, and that's how we exceed what he says in verse 20, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Amen? Let's pray.